Good morning, church. My name is Hunter Long, and I serve as a student pastor here at First Baptist Pal. And this morning, I have the privilege of worshiping God with you through the study of His authoritative Word. For those of you who have been with us, you know that our pastor, senior pastor, Pastor Perry Garrett, he's been working expositionally, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. And last week, we had the privilege of listening to Pastor Rick as he taught on the book of Second Chronicles. And this morning, we are going to be bouncing off of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28. 18 through 20. I say bouncing off because really this text is just going to serve as a foundation for our conversation around the topic of evangelism. Most of our time this morning will be spent considering a number of different passages as we look at this topic. And once you have found Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, would you please stand together as we read from God's authoritative word with one another. I don't think this will be on the slides, but for context, I'm actually going to have us go back and read verse 16. So beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28, Matthew writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity to open your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts and open our ears to receive the good news of the gospel. And not only to receive it, Father, but to in turn go and share that which you have given to us. We pray all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. A college freshman was wearing a large lapel button that had printed on it the letters B-A-I-K. When asked by a friend what, he, what it meant, he replied, boy, am I confused. The friend reminded him, as most of you are about to remind this friend, don't you know confused is not spelled with a K? Man, he responded, you don't know how confused I am. (laughs) The young man's predicament is not unlike that of many in the church today. Few subjects, I suspect, are connected with more misunderstanding than Christ's last command to his followers, go preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Some have reduced this divine call by the Son of God to a great suggestion rather than a great commission. Presently, I'm halfway through my Master's of Divinity Studies at Southern Seminary. In this past term, I had the privilege of studying personal evangelism under Dr. Timothy Booker. Maybe some of you have studied under him or you've read some of his material on evangelism. But the Holy Spirit has certainly used this class to convict me of my call to personally evangelize and to personally invite people to come and know and treasure Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if I may be transparent this morning, my my heart went into this class as hard as a rock. Because I, because I am a pastor, I foolishly believed 
that there is nothing more about evangelism that I need to know because I preach the gospel week in and week out to students. And hopefully my students would say the same. I'm always inviting young people to come to know and treasure Jesus Christ. So what else is there to learn? And whenever we say prideful things like that before God, he quickly humbles us in his kindness. It was in his kindness that the Lord reminded me that although I have received a calling vocationally to preach the gospel, it is not an excuse to turn off evangelism when I leave this campus or I leave some church-related activity. Evangelism, brothers and sisters, is not a suggestion. It is a commission given to us by the one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, there are three points that I want us to consider. And although Perry is absent from the pulpit, I will do him justice by incorporating three points and also various subpoints. I know he likes to say that as well. So three points, various subpoints underneath them. First, I would like for us to define evangelism. First point, define evangelism. It's a word I've said over and over, and doubtless you have said this word time and time again, and so it is worth defining for us. Second, I want to establish a theology for evangelism. You may be wondering what that means. Well, you'll just have to stick around to find out. I'm not going to give it all away here. Um, And then third point, just some application for us. There are various barriers that may arise in evangelism. And so for some application, I want us to study and think together how we can overcome barriers in evangelism. And note that these barriers are not things that God puts up. These barriers to evangelism are things that we put up in the way of reaching others with the gospel. And so three points, define evangelism, theology for evangelism, and third, overcoming barriers in evangelism. So first, let's define evangelism together. Humpty Dumpty's assertion in the fictional work, I never thought I'd say that in a sermon, but here we are. Humpty Dumpty's assertion in the, phys- in the fictional work, Through the Looking Glass, highlights the problem we all face when it comes to definitions. When I use a word, it means what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Now, I could pull a hundred of you aside and ask you to define what evangelism is, and doubtless I will walk away with 200 different definitions. Sometimes it is best to define a term by first what it is not. I believe there are many examples of what evangelism is not. We don't have time to go through all of them this morning. However, I do want to focus on one that is worth our consideration. It is perhaps the, the greatest misconception around evangelism in our world today. First subpoint under uh, defining evangelism, evangelism is not mere presence. Evangelism is not mere presence. And what do I mean by that? I mean lifestyle evangelism, that I'm just going to share Jesus, not verbally, but share him just by the way that I live my life. I've said something like this. Perhaps you have said something along these lines. I'm just going to witness with my life. I'm going to let my life do the talking. Some have misquoted St. Francis of Assisi, claiming he penned these words, Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Maybe you've heard that before. This statement is almost as foolish as saying, feed the hungry at all times, use food if necessary. Our life, dear friends, is not the gospel. Our life is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel, the reason for the hope that is within you, must be shared verbally. Go, Jesus says, preach and teach what he has commanded of us. Evangelism is more than just mere presence. 
Consider this, if you live a committed Christian life in front of people, but you never share the reason for the hope that is within you, they're going to assume one of two things about you. First, they're going to assume that maybe you're just a good person, and by human standards, you may fall into the category of good instead of bad, but your life isn't the gospel. Why? Because we are not saved by good works. We are not saved by our own efforts. No one is going to see you uh, help somebody up and fall down, and they'll fall down their knees and say, there must be a God of the universe who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. I will praise him the rest of the days of my life. No one is going to do that. We're not saved by our own efforts. No one is going to look at your good works and say, if I'm just a good person, then I'm going to earn this as well. Evangelism is more than just mere presence. We're saved not by our own works, but by grace through faith in Christ. Second, others might assume because you're a religious person. That's why. That's why. After all, they see you going to church each Sunday, and if you're extra bold, you may dare to go to church on Sunday nights or even Wednesday nights. But does religion save? Does simply standing in a church building make you a follower of Jesus Christ? No, religion does not save. It is only a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Standing in church does not make you a Christian, just as standing in a garage does not make you a car. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now Crew. He wrote a story about a Christian businessman who worked for years in the same office and never opened his mouth to testify about Christ. Now he sought to live a life of integrity, model compassion among his fellow workers. Finally, after several years, a man came to his office and asked if he had a few minutes to answer a personal question. The Christian businessman said, sure, confident that he was about to be asked for the reason for the hope within him. The coworker began by noting he had witnessed the difference in this man compared to the other workers in the office, and this is filling the Christian businessman's heart with excitement for the inevitable question about Christianity. No doubt he is shuffling his shoulders together, excited for the question that is to come. But instead, the coworker asked him, I have to ask, are you a Buddhist? Bill Bright noted, that the Christian businessman had indeed convinced the coworker he was different. But apart from any verbal sharing of the gospel, the coworker mistakenly assumed he was a follower of a different religion. A similar but more unsettling story is told by Leroy Sims about another Christian businessman in Seattle confessed how he had unknowingly discouraged a business associate for coming to Christ for years. One day the friend told the Christian businessman that he has met the Lord at a Billy Graham meeting. The longtime Christian was elated and said so, but the new Christian replied, Friend, you're the reason that I've resisted becoming a Christian all these years. I figured if a person could live as good of a life as you do and not be a Christian, there was no need to become one. This Christian businessman sought to live an exemplary life, but he had not communicated his strength for doing so. How would people know where our hope is found if we do not tell them? How will people know how we're able to walk with a smile on our face in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a cancer diagnosis, in the midst of losing a loved one if we never tell them about the God who's triumphed over all evil? Evangelism, dear friends, is not mere presence. Perhaps the misquoted line of St. Francis should be rephrased the following way. Share the gospel at all times and use words because they are necessary. 
There is, of course, a balance, and I don't want to say there isn't, between sharing the gospel verbally and living a life that is worthy of the gospel. There is a balance between these two. Evangelism is not without verbal sharing, just as it is not without living a life worthy of the message itself. We cannot proclaim to know Jesus and our lives live in, in, in contrast to that. We see a balance of these two characteristics in the book of Acts. For example, we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 boldly sharing his faith with Christ on the day of Pentecost in the streets of Jerusalem. 3,000 people were converted to Christ and were baptized. And then shortly afterwards in Acts 6, he and the other apostles were taking action to meet the needs of widows. In addition, members of the early church were known for their good works, being highly regarded by the people. And at the same time, they were obeying God's command to, as verse 20 of Acts 5 says, tell the people of the full message of this new life. Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Paul emphasized that Timothy's lifestyle and preaching were both important in the effort to evangelize others. So what then is the proper definition of evangelism? The definition I'm going to offer you is this. Evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the gospel to lost people. It is one that we are drawing near to others with the love of Christ that has been drawn near to us. A compassionate sharing verbally of the gospel to lost people by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring them to know Christ as Savior and Lord. This is all done by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring them to know and treasure Jesus Christ. And it goes on, so that they may in turn share him with others. We not only want to reach people with the gospel of Christ, but we want to train them. We want to equip them. We want to send them out to go and do the same because your sphere of influence is different than another's sphere of influence. They have their own people to whom they can share the gospel with. And I believe that the church today, because of movements like seeker-sensitive movements, attractional churches, we are more concerned with, quant- uh, with quantity over quality. We're more concerned with how many we have, and so we rejoice in days of Pentecost, 3,000, then we push them to the side and say, well, now you just sit over there while us pastors keep doing all the work. It's not what we're to do. We are to reach people with the gospel of Christ, train them up, equip them so that they may in turn go and do the same. That's what we should endeavor to do. A central task of evangelism is sharing the gospel, the good news. In the word evangelism, it's taken from the Greek word euangelion, which is translated the gospel. Within the word evangelism, we see the word evangel, good news. It used to be that a messenger, an evangelist, he would ride down from the royal palace into the center of the town and he would announce a royal announcement. Whether it was a royal birth, a royal decree, or victory has been secured on the battlefield on behalf of the people. In our evangelistic efforts, dear friends, we are doing much of the same. We are riding into your various environments. You are riding into your workplaces. You are riding into your school. You are riding into your hobbies. You are riding into Walmart, to Aldi, to the grocery stores. You are riding into these places to tell of the good news that the battle has been won. That Jesus Christ has triumphed over all. That according to the gospel, that although you were, that sin has separated us from God, Jesus died on the cross. 
He had paid the price and canceled the record of debt so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 53, 5 says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. The gospel is good news because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. We were once far off, but we have been brought near and fellowship. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is a scandalous grace. For you and I have done nothing to earn it. Yet by faith we may receive it. <laughs> the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Just as the people of the ancient days who were living their lives in their village towns and receive a message from the evangelists that the battle has been secured on their behalf. They've done nothing to earn it. It is theirs by faith for their trust in the king. This morning, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as the one who has died in your place to give you life, may today be the day of salvation. Would today not only be the day that you receive him as Lord, but you will be emboldened by the sweet taste of the gospel to become an evangelist, to go and tell this good news to others. If today is that day for you, or you just have questions, we would love to speak with you just out these doors to the left. There is a room on the right before you leave called Crossroads. There'll be a pastor there who can answer any questions to pray with you, to talk with you, any of those things. Thus far, we have seen that evangelism is not mere presence, but evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the good news with lost people so that they may in turn, by faith, come to know and treasure Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I'd like for us to turn our attention to the second point, which is theology for evangelism. Theology, simply, dear friends, is a study of God's nature, how he has revealed himself to us. Primarily, God has revealed himself to us in his special revelation, in his authoritative word. And this must serve as our foundation when we are discussing God's character, his nature. We must go to God's word. To summarize Francis Schaeffer. Christianity is based on two important realities. God is there and he is not silent. He has revealed himself to humankind and the record of his divine acts and speech are found in scripture. And so a necessary foundation when we're talking about theology is that God exists and he communicates to us. The only reason we are able to do theology at all is because God has done these things. We're not relying on prophets today to give us new revelation time and time again. He has completed his revelation to us in his authoritative word. In considering the theology for evangelism, we must look to how scripture, look to scripture and how God has revealed himself as the evangelist. As Dr. Bucher told our class, when Christians lose confidence in the Bible, they lose their passion for evangelism. When Christians lose confidence in the, in the Bible, they lose their passion for evangelism. Therefore, it's important that we consider how God reveals himself as the evangelist to embolden our evangelistic efforts. So first, Scripture reveals, under theology for evangelism, Scripture reveals God's nature and character behind evangelism. In Luke 15, we find three different parables concerning lostness, the lost sheep, 
the lost silver, and the lost son. And each one of these parables point to the same reality, the loving heart of God towards sinners and his rejoicing over the repentance and return of the objects of his love. Two times in these passages, Jesus states that there is great joy in heaven when a sinner repents. In Luke 15, 11 through 32, the story of the prodigal son, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with, the spotlight is on the father's manner of receiving his lost son who returns to him, a son who has gone off and squandered his father's inheritance. The real surprise, friends, in this story is that it is the fattened calf who is killed and not the son who ran off and squandered his family's wealth. God's nature and his character reveals that he welcomes repentant sinners into his presence. Amen. Perhaps some application for us here is this. If it is revealed as part of God's nature and character to restore those who are far off, who am I, the worst of sinners, to determine who and who is not worthy of that message? May it be in my evangelistic efforts, I do not proudly say, well, that person is just too far gone. May we remember that we were, at one time, ourselves too far gone. But the grace of God has brought us near. Second, Scripture reveals that evangelism is part of God's initiative. Looking again at Luke, Luke 15, verses 4 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. The focus of the story is placed on the seeking shepherd. God initiates evangelism. He empowers evangelism. As Romans 5, 8 reminds us, God shows his love for us and that when we got our act together, Christ said, no, <laughs> right? Praise God that it's not the case. No, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And what a beautiful picture of God's initiative, uh, God's initiative in our salvation this is. That he did not wait for you and I to get our act together. He would have waited certainly a long time. No, God took his initiative in our salvation while you were yet sinners, while you were far off, while you were most hostile in mind, while you were enemies of God, he took the first step in saving you. Amen. This is the God we serve. 1 John 4.19 teaches us we love because he first loved us. God's initiative becomes our initiative why do I lovingly call people from death to life in Christ? Because God has beautifully done that in my life. Third, Scripture reveals God's plan to evangelize the world by means of his followers. I think about all the possibilities that God could have chosen to communicate the message of salvation. He could have written the plan in the stars for us all to see. He could have written steps to peace with me on multiple stone tablets and passed them in languages all across the world. He could have used animals like talking donkeys like he once did before to communicate the good news. Certainly driving by the Bailey barn would be a different situation at that point. And he most certainly could have employed angels as heavenly messengers to communicate the saving message of the gospel, God could have used any of these methods, but he chose to use human beings as messengers of salvation. Those same people who were once far off, those same people who were enemies, he uses them to preach the gospel. At the center of evangelism is God himself. Amen. It is a part of his loving character, his divine initiative, 
and is accomplished through the employment of his chosen people as a part of his plan. Some may rejoice at this privilege of preaching the gospel. Others, you may be overwhelmed with a number of barriers that are starting to rise. Hopefully by now you see that this is no suggestion. This is a commission. And we may start to let the excuses fly a little bit here. Say, well, I can't do that because of this, that, or the other. And so with our remaining time together, I want to address three common barriers that people use to excuse themselves that I have used to excuse myself from the divine commission to preach the good news. So overcoming barriers, third point, sub-point number one. The first barrier is this, fear. The first barrier is fear. This, I would argue, is the greatest of all barriers that we all must overcome. Uh, perhaps we fear because we don't know enough. We fear that in our attempts to share the gospel with others, we may do more harm than good. When I first shared the gospel with somebody, I thought that I was going to put them in a worse situation than they already were before. But the good news about this fear is that we cannot possibly put a lost person into a worse condition than they already are. Apart from Christ, we are all bound to an eternity in hell. In our attempts to evangelize, it's not as if we're going to push them deeper and deeper into hell, but it's through the preaching of the gospel and the name that is above every other name that the Spirit of God would bring them out of hell. It's important to be aware that everyone is fearful to a degree when preaching the gospel. I'm fearful right now. Why am I fearful? Because I am handling the truth. And there's a, there's a level, there's a degree of fear to that. To a certain degree, fear is good and can prove desirable. Fear itself is not the problem. Fear can be a helpful and even necessary tool to keep us alert and in the spirit of prayer. Fear, dear friends, can be a good thing when it leads us to have strong confidence in God and not in ourselves. But when fear becomes, when fear be- keeps us from necessary action, then it becomes a problem. We must remember, we must remember evangelism is not a suggestion, but it is a commission. And the God who gives us his great commission promises us that as we go, his spirit will be with us always. The good news is that another person's salvation is not dependent on your performance, on my performance, but it's, it's based on Christ's performance. We cling to the promises of scripture, specifically Isaiah 55, 11. That God's word that goes out from his mouth that shall not return to him empty but accomplish the purpose for which he purposes. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The power of salvation lies in the Father's hands, not yours or my performance. I remember when Lee and I were first planning to have our first child, uh, there was conversation around being financially ready. And maybe you've heard this before. Perhaps you've advised somebody in this. If you wait till you're financially ready, you will never have a child, right? There's no such thing as financial stability in that sense. If we wait until all fear is gone before we share God's love with others, then we will never share. The second barrier we must overcome is busyness. Busyness. In dealing with busyness, we must acknowledge an important truth. A statement that I have made, and doubtless many of you have made, is something like this. I didn't have time for this and that. A statement which is seldom true. A more accurate statement for myself most of the time would be this. 
This item was not high enough on my priority list that I would set aside something else to do it. The truth is that we never find time for anything. We make time. I've heard it said time flies on its own, but it's up to us to be the navigator. We choose how to spend our time based on what's important to us. Our time is not our own, but we are merely stewards of the time that God has given us. Our lives are but amidst here today and gone tomorrow. We are reminded in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul reminds us that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. In the light of this, we are called to live our lives and spend our lives in the way that God desires. God's plan for us is not that we merely exist. I've often thought that if it was just God's purpose that we get saved, wouldn't we just be zapped out of here, here and now? We're not here to merely exist, but God has us here for a purpose, a greater plan and purpose for our lives that so we give our lives in loving service to others. Have you ever stopped to consider what in this world is eternal? Possessions, positions, prestige, pleasure. None of these things are eternal, but people are. Every person who has ever existed will either exist eternally with God in heaven or in hell, separated from him. Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. People are eternal, of course, not in the sense that God is eternal, in which God has no beginning, but our lives, our souls, they continue on eternally. Oh God, how we need, how God needs to burn in each of our hearts with this reality. There is nothing more important than people. Many people are giving their times, their lives, to accumulate things which God has already promised to destroy. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure, friends? Things are not bad, Right? Things are precious gifts from the God who loves us and cares for us. But when things become the thing, then it becomes a heart issue. And we must ask, am I investing in what is eternal or am I investing in what is temporary? A third and final barrier that we will look at this morning is the barrier of ignorance. And by ignorance, I mean someone who believes they are incapable of sharing the gospel because they are unclear about the message of the gospel or they are uncertain about the appropriate method to share the gospel. How do I even get a gospel conversation started? Well, it's crucial that in order to share the gospel, you must know the gospel, right? This is not to say that you must have 20 verses memorized, be able to explain the Trinity and all other spiritual matters. However, it does mean that you should be able 
to exposit the central thrust of the gospel message. And thankfully, Scripture does that for us. If you're looking for an excellent summary of the gospel to get acquainted with it, Paul does so in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. I think it's worth our time to read it since we're on the topic of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, For I deliver to you, as of, mo- as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep. Central to the gospel is the bad news that we are sinners, that apart from Christ, we are separated from God, destined for death. Our wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in in Romans 6.23. But Christ died for our sins. He canceled the record of death. Not only that, but he was buried. He rose three days later, thus proving that he is not just some ordinary guy. Ordinary people don't raise from the dead. But he is the son of God who did not need someone else to help him raise from the dead. He raised himself from the grave. Because he is the son of God. Proving that he is, like I said, not just some ordinary man. But he has victory over sin and death itself. And God didn't, Christ didn't appear just to, you know, people in ghostly form. But he appeared physically to individuals. To hundreds of individuals. Simple gospel presentation there, I believe. But what about method? How do we share this gospel message? There are, there are a number of different ways to share. We have the Romans Road, Tell, Three Circles, ABCs, God, Man, Christ Response. You can Google any of these and find them. Some are better than others. But in my opinion, if I can do some pushback on methods, too many people get sidetracked over methods that they never actually utilize it. They get so bogged down with all these different methods. I don't know what to use in this situation, that situation. The Romans road is not going to work for a 30-second conversation as it would for sitting down with a brother for coffee for an hour or so. So how do I adapt to all these different situations? More often than not, one method is not going to work in every scenario. And so there's some pushback on that, I think. But consider Jesus, for example. He had different methods for healing blind men. On one occasion, he only spoke a word. Another time, he used touch. And another occasion, he placed mud on a blind man's eyes. Can you imagine what would happen if these three guys got together to discuss their experiences? One would say, isn't it wonderful how Jesus heals by simply speaking? The other would say, you are wrong. He uses touch. And the third would say, you are both wrong. He uses, he doesn't use words or touch. He uses mud to heal. The argument alone would have formed three, de- three new denominations, right? <laughs> Touchites, speakites, mudites. <laughs> At the end of the day, methods do not matter, but the message does. At the end of the day, methods do not matter, but the message does. Am I getting at the central thrust of the gospel that Jesus Christ has died in my place for my sins so that if I respond in faith, I will have life? Not works, but faith. Not in my own efforts, but in his effort. Not in what I've done, but what he has accomplished on the cross. At the end of the day, methods do not matter, but the message does. Are we calling people to an awareness of sin? And do not leave them there, but tell them about the hope of Jesus Christ who bore the weight of their sin, canceled the record of death by nailing it to the cross and raising victoriously three days later so that if they place their faith in him, they will share in his victory. Dear friends, God does not call qualified people. But as you've surely heard, he equips the called. 
God delights in using ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. Many of the people in the Bible had no formal training to methodology. I think of the Samaritan woman who meets with Jesus at the well, who left her water pots and goes down to the village to tell them about the strange man she met at the well who is the living water. I think about the man born blind who testified about Jesus without having any formal training. Being brought before the religious leaders, they asked the man born blind, how did you receive his sight? The Pharisees believed Jesus was a sinner because he was giving God the glory for his healings as if he were God. It's almost as if he was God, right? And so they asked the man about this, to which he responds, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do, I was once blind, but now I see. The man born blind wasn't equipped to answer every spiritual matter under the sun to a hostile crowd. But he was equipped with a name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ. It is a simple gospel, dear friends, that we were once blind, but now we see. We were once dead, but now we are alive. Do not let ignorance keep you at bay, for if you know the name of Jesus, you have all the power needed to go forth and share. On January 13th, 1982, Air Florida's Flight 90 crashed on takeoff and fell into the icy waters of the Potomac River. Martin Skutnik, age 28, saw the plane go down. He stood with the other spectators on the riverbank watching a woman who had survived the crash and was struggling to swim in the cold water. Skutnik plunged into the river and rescued her. He had never taken a life-saving course, but he saved this woman's life. He may have not used the proper form or technique when he swam to the woman's side, or at least by as professional, at least as professional swim instructors would be concerned. He didn't, probably didn't follow Red Cross's life-saving manual and the method he used to grab the woman and bring her to safety on the shore. At the time, Skudnik was a general office worker who lived in a rent rented townhouse with his wife and two children. He had no training for the task he undertook that day. But he couldn't stand idly by and watch another human being die without trying to help. He became a national hero on that day by risking his life to rescue that drowning woman. We may feel less than adequate for the task of witnessing to Christ's love to those around us. We may feel inadequate because of our lack of formal training. Yet like Martin Skutnik, the urgency of the moment demands you do what you can with what you have right now. Yes, we must seek to learn all that we can. We must seek to endeavor to strive to learn all about the gospel that we can. But we must not wait until we've got it all together to begin sharing. We have been given a divine commission. Therefore, we must go preach and teach. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for this opportunity we have to come together. God, I'm thankful for the simple gospel that I was once blind, but now I see. I was once dead, but now I'm alive. And as a young Christian, that was all that I was able to share with people. And Lord, in our lack of formal training and our lack of knowledge, you are the God who has all knowledge. You are the God who is the evangelist. God, the power of salvation does not lie in human hands, but in the God who has condescended to man. 
becoming flesh, person of Jesus Christ who died in our place on Calvary to give us life. Lord, would we seek opportunities to share this good news? Lord, would we not allow barriers to get in the way? But Lord, will we trust in the truth that you are with us always? Like God, we cannot make anybody into a worse condition in which they already are. God, you have given us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power by your name. We're thankful for this time together. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see those who are drowning, those who are struggling to stay afloat, that we would reach them with the hope of the gospel. I pray all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.